Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It's late July, and it seems as if we are surrounded with political lies. Uh, as I speak, Bill Barr is testifying, if that's the right word, uh, in Congress, arguing that he there's no systemic racism in police departments. Uh, Donald Trump's son's been thrown off Twitter for spreading blatant lies about the coronavirus. And one of the Republican Party's most respected figures has a new book out called It Was All a Lie. Stuart Stevens was uh, Mitt Romney's chief strategist in, uh, in, uh, in his presidential bid. And uh, Stuart now is one of the pioneering figures behind the Republican uh, Lincoln Project, uh, a never Trump movement. Uh, Stuart, it was all a lie. There's a lot of anger in this book, a lot of, might I even say, self-hatred? Well, certainly self-examination. Um, you know, this is a book, Andrew, I never thought I would write, a book I never thought I'd want to write, um, but ultimately a book I felt like I had to write. I was involved in the Republican Party for decades. Um, and we all saw a certain dark side to the party. And uh, I told myself, and I think a lot of us did, it was really a recessive gene, but it turned out to be more of a, a, a dominant gene. Um, you know, my whole theory is that Trump didn't hijack the party, as some have said, but that the party became Trump and that Trump was really inevitable. Um, and it reflects what the Republican Party is now. It's really an attempt to look at post-war history of World War II Party and uh, examine how we got here. Yeah, as you say, the subtitle of the book is How the Republican Party Became Donald Trump. There's some amazing quotes in the book. There's one in particular that, I don't know whether I was amused or chilled or both. Um, uh, I'm quoting, you said, you say, uh, you wrote, hold Donald Trump up to the mirror and the bulging, grotesque orange face is today's Republican Party. So what you're doing, Stuart, is arguing, unlike a lot of other Republicans, that um, Trump is not an aberration. Trump is not yeah. a one-off. He, ref he reflects um, the outcome of a historical narrative that's been going on throughout your life as a, as a Republican strategist over the last... 50 years, really since uh, the early 1960s. Is that fair? That's a fair statement. Um, you know, I really think that uh, it's defined more by race than anything else. If you go to uh, 56, Eisenhower gets almost 40% of the African-American vote, which is extraordinary when you think back to it. Um, then Goldwater gets 7% in 1964. Now, you could have made a case in 64, 65, that after the Civil Rights Bill passed, Goldwater was against it, that African-Americans in some substantial numbers would come back to the party. 
there would be common ground enough on issues of family, faith, entrepreneurship, uh, but that never happened. So the Republican Party has really since 1964 um, been a predominantly white party. And there were a lot of us, particularly in, in the Bush 2000 and 2004 campaign, but really the first 2000 was most notable. You know, we, we acknowledged this, that this was a huge fault of the party. Um, you know, George Bush ran as a compassionate conservatism and he got conservative and he got a lot of grief from some on the right because they were saying, well, by calling yourself a compassionate conservative, by implication, you're saying that conservatism wasn't compassionate. And Bush's answer to that was, yeah, you're right. I think we have to do better. We have to change. Um, and there was this battle within the party. Um, and if you remember after 2012, when Romney lost, uh, the party went through this process of self-examination, which I, I think is to the party's credit. Um, it's never easy for any organization to examine itself. Um, and the conclusion was pretty obvious, but we're stating that the party had to expand more, reach out, appeal more to non-whites, appeal more to women. Um, and it was presented not just as a, a political mandate, but as a moral necessity, that if you're going to earn the right to govern in this big, confusing, loud, contradictory country that is America, you needed to reflect more of that diversity. So then Trump came and all that just went out the window. I mean, you could almost hear like an audible sigh of relief, like we don't have to pretend, thank God, that we care about this stuff anymore. We can just win with white people. Yeah, I don't know uh, why I'm laughing. I mean, it's pretty sad. You, you write, um, again, you don't pull any punches, Stuart, and it's one of the things I love about this book. You say the Republicans have become the official party of a white governing class in the United States. And what's particularly chilling about that is it seems to me, with Trump at least, that the only thing he actually believes in, apart from his own narcissism, is racism. The one thing that he sticks to through mm -hmm. thin and thick and thin is contempt for, for black and brown people, particularly black people. So whether or not that's true, and I don't want to spend too much time talking about Trump today because we spent too much time on the show on that. And this book is interesting because it's not really about Trump. Would it be fair to say that the Republican, the Republican Party has become the official party of a white racist governing class in the United States? Well, you know, when you try to talk about Trump and race, immediately the question that is answered, so look, are you telling me that 63 million people in America are racist who voted for Trump? So my answer to that is, well, first of all, there probably are 63 million racists in America, so let's don't kid ourselves. But I don't think that you have to be a racist to have voted for Trump. But I think that you have to admit to yourself that something is more important about Donald Trump being uh, president than not having a racist as president is to you. And I think this is particularly true now in a re-election where you have Trump defending the Confederacy, um, defending the Confederate flag. Um, it, I, it's extraordinary to me um, that, that we're having this discussion. Look, I'm from Mississippi. I'm a seventh generation Mississippian. I'm named for Jeb Stewart, crying out loud. Um, you know, Confederate Calvary General. Um, and a, a few weekends ago, the state legislature voted to take down the Mississippi state flag which was basically the Confederate battle flag. 
for a lot of us in Mississippi, it was a very moving moment. Um, and that same week, Trump is defending the Confederate flag. So it's as if even when it's coming down in the heart of the Confederacy, Mississippi, Trump is trying to raise it over the White House. Um, I think it's a huge mistake, obviously morally, but I think politically. Um, I think he's, he's completely on the wrong side of, the history, of history here. And I think it's a terrible mistake for the Republican Party not to be more vocal opposing this. You know, what's really ironic is the one thing that Trump doesn't lie about is his own racism. That's the one, the one thing where you could say about his regime, it wasn't a lie. He, well, he does lie he about it. And he, he behaves he, like one. He does lie. He says, I'm not a racist. Um, but so did David Duke. Um, exactly. You know, Adam so Hitler probably as well. He said he wasn't I against mean, the Jews. So yeah. The Ku Klux Klan denied in some instances that it was racist saying that it was just a party that was fighting for your white heritage. If there's blacks, let them fight for their heritage. We'll fight for our heritage. That's not racist. Yeah, well, it is racist. Um, it's, it's incredibly um, demoralizing and sad, but I think you have to face the facts that the party has allowed this to happen. And yeah, what's you, you write, again, you, you, you write this book as if it's a, almost an obituary about a friend of yours or a close friend or a family member. You say, or you write, watching the Republican Party is like watching a friend drink himself to death. Yes. Is this book essentially an obituary for the Republican Party? What's the book? I'm sorry. Is the book an obituary or your obituary no. for the Republican Party? Look, um, the Republican Party is going to continue to exist um, as the center-right party in America. Um, but I think it's sort of like the subprime mortgage crisis. It's easier to predict how it ends than how long it takes to get there. Um, so, you know, I came across a statistic not long ago that just absolutely blew me away, Andrew. Of Americans 15 years old and under, the majority are non-white. So odds are really good they're going to turn 18 and remain non-white. And that is sort of a, a, a stage four cancer warning for the Republican Party if it doesn't change. Now, look, for a long time, the Republican Party, well, since 64, has failed in its efforts to appeal to African-Americans. But at least, like in the Bush world, we acknowledge this was a failure. And we attempted to address why it was a failure. Uh, Ken Melman, who was chairman of the uh, Republican National Committee in 2005, I think it was, went uh, in front of the NAACP and apologized for the Southern strategy of Nixon, um, which was really the origins of the strategy to try to divide um, African-Americans from the Democratic Party. Now, we, you know, we used to hear this phrase, Big Ten a lot. I mean, I, I don't even remember the last time I heard that phrase. We're not even pretending anymore. Um, and in that sense, you know, I got to say, I think Donald Trump has served a useful function. It, it's sort of like, you know, the truck that goes across the cracking bridge that goes through. It didn't make the bridge crack, but he made it impossible for us to deny that it wasn't cracked. And here we are. Here we are indeed. Um Stuart, I had um, Peter Weiner on the show a few weeks ago, and he, My like hero. you, was, was uh, 
was incredibly articulate and, and deeply passionately opposed to Trump. Um, you're the same. Your book is, is, is really a, a memorable read. Um, and the project that you're involved with now, the Lincoln Project, I think has done a better job than anything else in exposing the hypocrisy and lies and evil of Trump. Um, what is it about Republicans like you and Peter Weiner and David Frum um, that brings out this incredible, incredibly articulate demolition of, of Trump? Why are the Republicans better at critiquing Trump than the Democrats? Well, look, what is it about all happy families are the same? Um, you know, I, I think we feel responsible for this. I mean, I certainly, I can only speak for myself. You know, I can't say, how did these people do that? I was one of those people, you know? I mean, look, I was in the belly of, of the beast. I, I helped more Republicans get elected than any other person in my position, a media consultant. Um, so I, I think we have to take responsibility. Look, one, one of the key elements that drew a lot of us to the, aspects that drew a lot of us to the Republican Party was personal responsibility, that concept. I mean, we used to attack Democrats probably unfairly, but we used to do it as being the party of victimhood. Um, I mean, so if we really believe that, I don't know where else to begin except with personal responsibility. Um, and, and I can't say that it's anybody else's fault. Uh, I mean, what is a party except this voluntary association of individuals? And I was one of those individuals. I benefited from it. Um, I did, I was really good at it. Um, and I, I, listen, people now say to me, so you think the Democratic Party is perfect? I go, look, I spent 30 years of my life pointing out what's wrong with the Democratic Party. But it wasn't my fault. It wasn't my party. Uh, it's not my family. Um, and I, I think that you have to begin with yourself. So I think a lot of us, and look, to me, Pete Weiner and Michael Gerson, who also writes for the Washington Post, they are the best of us. They are, they are much better people than I am. Um, they are evangelical Christians who held true to the faith. And both of them just write like angels crying. Um, and I think years from now, they're going to be read, you know, more than any of us, as sort of an analysis of how did this happen. Um, it's it's deeply disturbing when you see anything that is tragic happening. It's personally disturbing when you were part of that. Um, right, and, and you you are of course personally you 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 write about it and you speak about it as if it's a family or an old friend that's gone wrong or is dying or has committed some terrible crime. Your book is a litany of the lies of the Republican Party. You begin with the, 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 the initial, the original sin of racism. You talk about family values and, and everything else. Is there any truth left at all, Stuart, in the Republican Party? You, you do find a glimmer of hope, it seems, with um, some, some uh, moderate Republican governors. Do they yeah. offer that kernel of hope? of truth that can rebuild the party? Well, no, I don't think so, because I don't think they really have any place in the party. So, you know, Republicans always talked about um, trying to run things like a business, like 
the country, the party. So you have these Republican governors uh, in deep blue states like Maryland, Governor Hogan, uh, Vermont, where I am now with Phil Scott, um, which was Hillary Clinton's fifth best state. Massachusetts is probably Hillary Clinton's second best state. They have Charlie Baker, who's a Republican. I work for all these guys. I love them. They're fantastic. Um, if the party had any um, sense, it would look at these people and say, look, these are people who are selling our product in the toughest market and they're selling the hell out of it. What do we need to learn from them? But instead, the party treats them at best with benign neglect. Um, and it, they don't have a place in the party. Uh, they have a, a place as governors and they're fantastic governors and they win with big numbers, historic numbers. Um, and they do what the party has failed to do, which is draw a diverse uh, following of support. But it's like the party is sort of embarrassed by them. Um, listen, you know, one of the things that really, when I started writing this book, I went back and I read George Bush's 2000 acceptance speech at the Republican convention, which Michael Gerson wrote. And I was there when this was written. I remember the first draft. I remember the first time uh, then Governor Bush read it. You read it today, Andrew, and it reads like an artifact from a lost civilization. I mean, it's like something you've stumbled across that like the Mayans did. Um, I mean, you cannot believe it's all, it, this was the same party. It's all about compassion, humility, um, service. I mean, those are all weaknesses in today's Republican party, certainly in Trump world. That, that figure who espouses those views couldn't get 10% in the Republican primary today. You wouldn't stand a chance. And I don't think the Trumpism is gonna go away. So if, if you take those Republican governors, right, it was always a truism that if you were a governor in a state, you could control your state party. You could pick who runs the party. I mean, it's like, you're head of the party, you're the governor. These guys can't pick their own chairmans of the party. They're Trump people. And, and they get elected, but they can't control their own party. And to me, that is just such a telling sign of the party. Um, and look at the people who were thinking about running in 2004, Josh Hawley, Nikki Haley, Ted Cruz. None of these people are attacking Donald Trump. None of them are saying we need to take the party in a different direction. They're all incredibly phony. They're all incredibly well-educated. They're all people who pretend that the, uh, the higher education is some sort of conversion therapy to socialism. Um, what hope is there with these people? Um, Stuart, you're in some from, ways, I think, uh, worse than Trump. You, you, Stuart, you're from Mississippi. You, you know how bad some of these endings are with lies, the violence, and the historical legacy of violence and of conspiracy theories and all the rest of it. How is this, in all seriousness, how is this thing going to end? Let, let's talk yeah. to, to, to end this interview. The short-term ending and the longer-term ending, in, in, in all seriousness. Yeah, what's going um, to happen in November, in your view? Look, Trump should lose, and Republicans should lose badly. Um, and what happens then? Will he go? I think, my, my, my feeling is now, I have to, a lot of people were wrong about Donald Trump in 2016, but it's hard to find anybody who was more wrong than me. Um, so I have to sort of, like, I'm almost like a contrary indicator. Like, well, you know, I was pretty wrong. This guy we're buys, all wrong. Everybody was wrong. Well, when this guy buys a stock, you should sell. I'm one of those guys. But um, 
I, I believe we're in for a period of center-left government in the United States for a considerable period of time. And I say that because if you listen to Elizabeth Warren, take her as an example, she can articulate a coherent theory of government. You can love it, you can hate it, but you can argue with her. And she will argue back and it will be a cogent, intelligent argument. I don't know anybody in the Republican Party that can do that with any truth of what it means to be a conservative in America today, what it means to be a Republican. What it means to be a Republican is that you're not for Democrats. So that's not a political party, that's a, that's a cartel. That, no one asked OPEC, like, what do you really believe in? You believe in selling oil. No one asked a narco cartel, like, you wanna sell drugs, man. So that's what the Republicans are now. They wanna elect Republicans, that's it. Um, so I think an okay coherent argument will always be an incoherent argument in the long run. So um, if you, here's an interesting test, right? You're gonna have a Republican nominee, Donald Trump. He's gonna pick a vice president, Mike Pence. You're gonna have uh, a vice president, former vice president Biden pick a vice president. So one of the things I like about the whole Biden operation, I think there's a lot to admire there, uh, just in a political operation, is they aren't trying to deny that Joe Biden is a transitional figure, which is good because like, if you ask a fifth grader, they would say he's a transitional figure. Um, who he picks as vice president, right? Uh, he says it's gonna be a woman, I, I expect it'll be a woman of color. So when that happens, you know, I just say to you, look, look at that vice presidential pick and look at Mike Pence and ask yourself who more is the future of America. And I can guarantee you it's going to be who, who Joe Biden picks. So the future of America, uh, Stuart, is the future of the Republican Party essentially Mississippi, more and more marginalized, more and more irrelevant, more and more impoverished? Yes. I think a good way to look at what's going to happen to the Republican Party, in my view, is to look at what happened to the Republican Party in California. And there's a long uh, history of what happens in California then sort of rolls across what happens in America. So California was the bedrock core of the Republican Party. It gave us Ronald Reagan. It was the linchpin of our electoral strategy. So where's the Republican Party today? It's in third place. It's not second. There's Democrats, there's independents, which they call no party preference, and they're Republicans. So you went from running the world to third place. I think that's what's gonna happen uh, to the Republican Party in its current in incarnation. Um, I think it'll take a while, but listen, they're just, right now, Trump wants to run on a cultural war. I mean, we all know this, he's not even pretending. So. That cultural war on issues of COVID and Confederacy and this, Republicans have managed to get themselves on the wrong side of NASCAR and Walmart. So, I mean, look, if you're a center-right party and you're, you're like on the wrong side of Walmart and NASCAR, baby, you're in trouble. That is not like the place you wanna be. Um, and that's where it is. Um, this whole idea that there's some great longing in the South of the Confederacy is nonsense. You take your average teenager in Mississippi, they would a lot rather be a black rap star than a Confederate general. 
I mean, it's just, they're just on the wrong side here. I mean, they, they, these are, I mean they're not any different, that, different than anybody else. They don't grow up thinking about, ah, only if we had waited till night to charge up Pickett's charge, you know, and we would have won. They're thinking about that. They're thinking about like music and, and, and culture. And, um, you know, they, they want to be hip. They are hip. Um, it's the same thing happened, you know, with, with uh, same-sex marriage. I mean, it's extraordinary. And, and I think that's a very telling way in which to look at that as sort of the speed at which cultural change can happen. It's sort of like, what did Hemingway say about how you go bankrupt slowly and then all at once? Um, in 08, which isn't exactly ancient history, 2008, no presidential candidate was for same-sex marriage. None. None of the Democrats, none of the Republicans. Then in 12, uh, Obama came out for it. Now, I mean, you don't even hear any talk about it. it, it, it it's, it's, I mean, what they said, a lot of people who supported same-sex marriage said this was gonna become like interracial marriage. And guess what, they were right. And even if you think that black people shouldn't marry white people, people don't go around saying this in public now. Um, and that's, I think, sort of telling on the speed to which cultural change is gonna happen. And look, you know, one of the touchstones of the Republican Party was to say that culture matters the most. If you go back and you read like William Bennett, these, these books that he wrote, like the Book of Virtue, uh, the Death of Outrage that he wrote about Bill Clinton, uh, they were right. Culture does matter most. But now they used it then to weaponize an attack against Clinton. But now that we have Trump, it's as if, well, that doesn't really matter anymore. No, it does. They were right. They just can't admit that they were right now because it means that they'll have to oppose Trump. Well, there you have it. Stuart Stevens, uh, perhaps the last Republican to tell the truth, the author of really uh, entertaining and provocative and troubling new book, It Was All a Lie. Uh, Stuart, I want to thank you. And I want to have you back on the show next year because I think you need to rebuild the Republican Party and we need to have another conversation about that rebuilding in hopefully a post-Trump age. Listen, Andrew, I'm like the, uh, the relative you don't want to come to Thanksgiving. If you invite me, I'll come. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.